Oh, hello, Miss Brown. Meet Bunny Rabbit. Oh, we're old friends. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Thank you. Did you? Aren't you ready yet? Just like a man. Uh, and, Sam, uh, will you get his jacket? I'll get it. You're going to be late, you know. Late? For the Easter parade. We had a date. Remember? Oh. It's ticklish business anyway you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. to ticklish business i'm Kristen, joined as always by the lovely and amazing samantha and this week we are putting on our easter bonnets with all our frills upon it to talk about ann miller who is celebrating her centennial this year as well as the easter holiday with 1948's easter parade and of course we are joined by an amazing guest a friend of the podcast the wonderful Izzy of Be Kind Rewind. Izzy, how are you? I'm doing great. Even better after revisiting Easter Parade. <laughs> we need bonnets for this. I feel like we did not prep enough because we are not wearing Easter frippery. Missed opportunity. Well, this is a podcast. We could have pretended that we were. Who would have known? The movie magic. I'm just spoiling it for everybody. Of course, before we talk to Izzy about Easter Parade, we'd like to briefly remind everyone that if you haven't checked out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz, then you should. We do additional bonus pods, including doubled features, looking at remakes, and based on a true podcast, looking at biopics and true crime. We have most recently our episode that we did on the dueling versions of Sabrina, which Twitter had a lot of opinions on. A lot of people really like the 1995 Sabrina remake. And we're sad that I did not love it. I'm sorry that I'm not sorry. We would love to do more of those. So please always give suggestions. We also give out regular care packages of movies and gifts and let you guest on an episode that's at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Don't forget that my book, but have you read the book, 52 Literary Gems That Inspired Our Favorite Movies, is out now. You can order that wherever you get books. I'm doing book signings and book events. And I hope to be at this year's TCM Classic Film Festival in some capacity with the book, so stay tuned for more info there. And our new Redbubble store has some fabulous art, all designed by Samantha Ellis, featuring your favorite classic stars, including our always popular Makoko mugs. We may not be talking about the pirate specifically, but the pirate will be a part of this episode. You can find that at redbubble.com slash people slash ticklish biz. Let's talk about Easter Parade. Samantha, you and I wanted to honor Ann Miller. We love her. Fastest taps in the West. And we decided to blend this and Easter and do Easter Parade. The more I watched this movie, I realized I love Ann, but this is not her film. She has some really nice shining moments. But unfortunately, Anne is one of those actresses that fell through the cracks a little bit when it came to the really talented musical stars in the golden age of Hollywood, your Jane Powells, your Debbie Reynolds, they had their opportunities to be front and center. Even Sid Charisse got a chance a couple of times. Most of the time she was in the background. Movies like On an Island with You that you and I love so much, of course. You've got also movies like Brigadoon where she's front and center. So Unfortunately, Anne is one of those people you can't really find too many movies where she is the leading lady. But this one just has so many gems in it that you can't ignore it as part of her amazing filmography. 
it's definitely a movie where she is getting that star appeal to her. Most people might be surprised. Ann Miller had been working since she was a teenager, starting in the 1930s. She really did do her due diligence. She put in her dues. She was in stuff like Stage Door and You Can't Take It With You, playing the kid's sister and Too Many Girls. The thing that I always loved noticing about Ann Miller is when she had her old nose. So if you look at some of her early movies, that nose is not the nose that she is working with in this film. So one of the earliest examples I can think of of obvious plastic surgery, do not at me with hashtag Ann Miller's new nose. Actually, maybe we should just make that a hashtag. Let us know whether you preferred Ann Miller's old nose or her new nose. But she really was just doing the starlet thing, making a lot of movies that I doubt a lot of people know about, stuff like Go West Young Lady and Time Out for Rhythm. I know that Reverie with Beverly has gotten a bit of a second life thanks to TCM, and she is the lead of that movie. She is the eponymous Beverly, but that really is just an early look at music videos, essentially, because she introduces bands and then they play for the majority of the film. Most people might be surprised to find out that it really wasn't until Easter Parade that she had actual supporting status. And then she, the next year, she would get On the Town and Texas Carnival and Lovely to Look At, all the films that we now know as Ann Miller vehicles. But that was into the 1950s. It's always surprising when people talk about Ann Miller as this really classic old Hollywood star. And, and she toils for nearly two decades just building credits almost like boris karloff in a way the statistic is frankenstein was his 151st credit and is in a similar vein and yet Anne was not the first choice in this much like many of the actors in this movie not the first choice a lot of her success also has to do with finding the right home for her rko i think has a little bit more of an edge to its musicals than MGM does, and especially moving into the late 1940s and 1950s. She fits so well into that MGM manic type of musical where she can just be the showman that she is, which doesn't quite capture the tone of musical that was happening at RKO in the 1930s. It's a little bit about timing as well with her finding something that's really going to suit her talents the best. And what I love about Ann Miller as a musical performer is that she really is an anthema to some of the big musical stars of this era, like your Judy Garland's, like your Doris Day's. The thing we all love about Ann Miller is she'll be playing a character from the gay 90s or some little small town, and then all of a sudden she'll just rip her skirt off and there's little tap pants and she'll just do a whole jazz number, which is completely at odds with the rest of the movie. And what makes Ann Miller so special is that she understood that. She understood what people wanted to see. We watch musicals to watch people sing and dance. She doesn't really give you a lot of characterization because she knows that you don't give a crap about that at all. But that is also why I think Easter Parade is the strange film for her because this is requiring her to play a character in a way that she doesn't really have to in other films. I don't think this character is actually a villain in modern terms in the sense that of course, we want her to actually not hold herself back for this man. But I think the film is framing her that way as this selfish other woman who would choose her career over Fred Astaire. It's just not the kind of thing that you typically see her in because she's not the friendly, 
always smiling sidekick in this. So it does stretch her a little bit. But it's interesting because it tells you what we need to know about Judy's character. This is the woman with legs and Judy doesn't have legs. That's all you need to know about this dynamic. It plays on the biggest dichotomy with Judy Garland movies, which is Judy's just basic. I love that the movies sell her as she's just basic and a plain Jane, but she's got a good heart, small town girl, and oh no, she can't hold her own against this hot, tall sex pot with good gams. And I love the effort to make Ann Miller look exotic. You can see that Fred Astaire's character made her into something that she wasn't as well, because she's about as white as you can get. (laughs) Name her Nadine, which I mean, I don't even know what that's supposed to be. I think it's just supposed to be so ambiguous. I thought that my TV was broken for a second when I watched this movie, because I was like, why is everybody covered in brown face? Why does it look like yeah, Rita so Moreno's West Side Story? <laughs> Lots of bronzer. Lots Even of Judy, bronzer. she has it packed on. They did not do her any favors with some of those looks. And they do the lightning, the white liner in the corner of her eyes to make them pop. But it's really distracting on Judy because we're so used to seeing Judy without a lot of makeup. And here she just has so much makeup on. But I love that they call her Juanita. This was made right after the pirate had come out and bombed, where she plays a Latina named Manuela. So I don't know if that's the script taking the piss out of Judy or not, but I always smile at it. This hints at some of those musicals that we would see in the later part of the 40s, just that oversaturation of color almost too much. They really want to show you, hey, this movie is in color. So much of the good neighbor policy that you would see in movies around this time, it's influenced in almost every movie in the mid to late 40s. This movie is interested in taking the piss out of its actors in general. The switch in Fred Astaire's character is taking a stab at him. Say those ballroom numbers you did with Ginger Rogers in the 30s aren't going to cut it anymore. We're looking for something snazzier. We're looking for something a little more lively, a little more funny. And so you're going to have to modernize and we're giving you these Judy Garland numbers. And Judy Garland, who's the it girl now, to make you more modern, came out of retirement to do this. Make no mistake, this was a Frankenstein's project. Pretty much the only original member of the cast that was there from the beginning is Judy Garland. The plot in a nutshell, before we get too deep into it, is Judy Garland plays Hannah Brown. Again, couldn't be more basic if she tried. Her last name is literally Brown, who is a waitress who catches the eye of traveling hoofer impresario Don Hughes, played by Fred Astaire. He has just lost his girlfriend slash dancing partner Nadine, played by Ann Miller. And much like She's All That, decides that he can turn any dancer into the next Nadine and picks Hannah to be the next person. They have this enemies to lovers plotline that unfolds as she becomes successful. Don't forget that there's another dude in this. Peter Lawford plays Johnny Harrow III, the rich guy who also loves Hannah. But it's Peter Lawford playing second banana in a movie, so... He's SOL. That's not a spoiler. That's just facts. I said this off air. I've seen this movie several times, and I always think that I am 
only remembering the big beats that clearly there is more plot to this film than there is. No, it's actually just a really, really thin plot line. It's so musical heavy, it's almost ridiculous. There are literally song, a scene, sometimes not even a scene, and then there's just another song. Fred Astaire is introduced with two songs in the first five minutes. It is pervasive. The songs are great. Shaking the Blues Away, Fella with an Umbrella, so many good musical moments, but they are just packed into this movie, almost as if they did not trust the cast to carry this film for an hour and 40 some odd minutes. I disagree with the songs. The songs are what kill it for me. Most same girl, interesting. Same girl. I love it. These are not Irving <laughs> Berlin's finest moments. They're not the opinion. A-sides. I was watching this with someone who had never seen it before. And for the majority of the film, we were just staring at each other like his name is above the title. And he was paid money for these songs. (laughs) Fellow with an Umbrella is adorable. Don't get me wrong. Peter Lawford is probably one of my favorite Peter Lawford moments, which is saying a lot because you know how much we love Peter Lawford on this podcast. Other than that, nothing stands out. And a lot of the lyrics don't age well horribly in fact it's the lyrics for me more than anything fellow with an umbrella i think actually might be a precursor to tiktok songs because it's a verse and a chorus it's actually not a full song i was kind of surprised again thinking that i clearly did not remember all of the words to this three minute song it's not even a three minute song it's maybe two minutes tops there are some bangers in here, though. Okay, I really like Stepping Out With My Baby. Fantastic. Classic. Shaking the Blues Away is great. I do not like Easter Parade, the song, which sucks because it's the name of the musical. <laughs> and they sing it about five times. Yes, exactly. I um, always start singing Easter Parade and then somehow transition into the Christmas song, Happy Holidays. So I think it's the On the Avenue line, which sounds... I start singing a Christmas carol at some point while I'm trying to remember the lyrics to this supposedly iconic song. Where a Couple of Swells is really good. It's a solid song, but it's sold by Fred Astaire and Judy Garland. It's taken to a different level by their performances. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but the one that Judy sings in the bar, that's really the only really powerful vocal moment that we get from her in this movie which is another one of my big drawbacks. I want her to sing, and she's singing, but she's not Judy singing, like we know she can sing. And it's a little disappointing in that regard. I know that's not what the movie wants her to do, but it's what I want her to do. What we all want. (laughs) What's fascinating is, is that there was a musical number that they gave her, a song called Mr. Monotony, where she's wearing the summer stock outfit, the tuxedo jacket and the fedora and the nylons. And it was supposedly cut from the film because it was deemed too risque for a film that's set in 1912. And it wasn't until the 90s when it was included in That's Entertainment 3 that people could see it. A, it's only one song, so they're still failing by only giving Judy one big number. Also, a Judy Garland too risque number. I would have loved to have seen it because nothing Judy ever got to do was risque. And it might have made her happy. It might have made their love story believable. (laughs) Oh, we're going to get into this love story because it is just insane in the brain. We talked up top that this is a Frankenstein movie where only Judy was the only performer to be considered. 
from the beginning. This was meant to be a rejuvenation of her since the pirate had been this big commercial and critical failure and she had struggled to complete that. This was meant to be a way for her to bring back the Judy Garland sparkle, although it wouldn't really be until 1950 with Summerstock that that would really bear fruit. It was originally supposed to be her and Gene Kelly as a reteam, but Gene Kelly, I love this story, I hope it's true, supposedly broke his ankle while stamping his foot playing a volleyball game. I heard it was his leg in football, touch football. I heard it was volleyball, but I heard it was his foot. (laughs) We're getting very different stories. There's a Venn diagram somewhere. It involved a sport and something stupid. Yes. An injury that makes me think that Gene Kelly might have had very, very brittle bones because I don't know who stamps their foot and breaks their ankle. But he did. And so he couldn't do it. He reached out to Fred Astaire, who he was friendly with. Fred Astaire had been in retirement. And the two decided that Fred Astaire was going to make this movie. And it did really help Fred Astaire's career and led him into making a bunch of movies in the 1950s. Sid Charisse was supposed to play the Ann Miller role. She also broke a limb and could not play in this film. And Frank Sinatra was originally considered for the Johnny Harrow role, and he turned it down. I just kept thinking of all of those actors watching this movie, and all of them make far more sense than all of the actors. And actually, I take that back. The only one that makes sense other than Judy is Peter Lawford, because he always played this type of character. I could see him in this. This is a vehicle far better suited to Gene Kelly than it is to Fred Astaire. Definitely. And Sid Charisse. Sid Charisse is exactly who I described earlier when I was saying it was a strange role for Ann Miller. The Fred Astaire element, we talked about this when we did our Sabrina episode, but there was a 23-year age difference between Fred and Judy in this movie. He was pushing 50. She was 26. I know we've had some weird May-December romances in classic film history, but... They have zero chemistry together. I could believe he's maybe her dad trying to get her out on the stage. But the romantical element of this literally culminates with her being like, I'm in love with you. And he's like, what? Well, why didn't you say so? And we're in love. That's not script writing. That is you backed yourself into a corner and you need to get this resolved. So just have them kiss once, just once and move on. I just feel like it was so unnecessary as well. The simple plot that you described earlier doesn't hurt this movie. It's just a cute musical that's easy to follow, which is a plus. The romantic entanglements. It's a five-person love circle, really. The love quadrangle. Yeah, exactly. I don't see why we couldn't have had this exact movie with Fred Astaire as her dad, and she runs off with Peter Lawford. And everybody's happy with that. I would be happy with that. And it's more believable. I do like her with Peter Lawford in this. They go really, really well together. Fellow with an umbrella. All the scenes, they're so cute together. I'm just going to say most things go good with Peter Lawford. That's neither here nor there. He's perfectly cast in this movie. Perfectly cast. I always make fun of Peter Lawford singing and dancing because it's like watching a dog walk on its hind legs. But here, it actually works because they don't make him dance. And the song is at least suited to his type of vocal styling. See Good News for a great example of when it can go really bad. I never understand why Hannah Brown looks at him and she's like, eh, I can do better. I never, ever get it. 
Johnny is going to be a doctor, for starters, but he's also studying to be a lawyer. He comes from money. He looks like Peter Lawford, so that helps. He's nice to her. He's chivalrous. And at one point, they're having just this romantical dinner, and he's, like, putting the moves on her, and she's just like, all I can think about is my geriatric dance partner. Make it make sense. Make it make sense. Bad script writing. Bad script writing. Because you're watching this scene just being like, girl, you are just giving out vibes that are not at all being reciprocated. And not only that, but I do think his role in the whole thing is unclear. He's just the friend who's kind of around, but also an academic. It's really never explained very well. (laughs) He's like Edward Everett Horton if he was hot. If we're going to take the Fred and Ginger structure and translate it here. Yeah, he's that guy. Edward Everett Horton. Okay, fine. I get that. That makes sense. Why would you get a snack and put it next to a dirt clod and say the dirt clod is a better option. I don't understand it. Just in general, when I was watching this, it felt so weirdly juxtaposed to me. You see the ballroom dancing and the gowns of the Fred and Ginger days, but it's in 1948 in Technicolor and you just want more we've moved past this point in filmmaking and that isn't to say that Fred and ginger movies aren't literally my favorite movies of all time they still absolutely hold up after all those years i just think there's such different eras that we've moved on at this point the big failure with easter parade is i can't harp on this enough the script because you can look at a fred and ginger movie like top hat And the story is still entertaining. Yes, I do confuse the plot of Top Hat with the plot of any other Fred and Ginger movie, but at least I know what the plot is. This movie just feels like they are a series of dance numbers tentatively strung together by a concept of a plot as opposed to an actual plot. And a lot of that might be due to the fact that this has Three screenwriters, Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett, longtime musical mavens, came up with the original story. Sidney Sheldon did some work on this. He's also credited with the screenwriting. And then you have Guy Bolton, who did some uncredited work on this in some form. And Guy Bolton was known for really doing a lot of television, play work. He did do the story for Till the Clouds Roll By and He was an uncredited writer on Ziegfeld Follies and a lot of other musicals. So clearly there was some type of script doctoring that went on here. Sidney Sheldon was more, now famously, we would know him more as a a television writer. But in the 1940s, he was doing stuff like The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer, which he had done the year prior to this, and a couple of other actual dramas. It almost feels like they didn't really know what the tone of the story was and then started soliciting opinions from a lot of different screenwriters to doctor this into shape. Strange, though, because all of those writers are good at plot. All the Thin Man movies, for example, are very plot heavy and not in a way that feels overwritten. They're just very well paced in that way. And that's what is lacking here is that detail and character overlap that actually makes sense. And Sidney Sheldon, every single TV episode that he wrote, which was hundreds of pure plot, which is crazy. It is very confusing. It must have just truly been 
a lack of direction from the top. It almost makes me wonder if this is one of those movies where a lot of competing personalities demanded stuff and had to be appeased. Fred needs to have X amount of dance numbers. Judy needs to have X amount of dance numbers. Ann Miller was becoming a big thing, whether you want to believe that was because she was Louis B. Mayer's mistress or not. She required a certain amount of dance numbers. You get these extended sequences where it's just them on stage. Fred and Judy doing a number, and then Ann will come out and do a whole number, and then they'll go back to them doing another competing number. And then at one point, they go to a different theater to see Ann perform, which leads to another number. It really does feel like they're trying to appease everybody by giving them a set amount of performances. The biggest failure with Easter Parade is that a lot of these performers have done better performances and other things. It's great that Fred Astaire pushing 50 could still do all of the whiz-bang that he does. And there's a brilliant sequence in this movie where he's in slow motion and the group behind him is in regular motion. And so you really get to see the minutia of his dancing. That's really inventive. But that's less on him and more camera trickery than anything else. And Miller has done so many great dance routines and prehistoric man the year after and on the town or even too darn hot and kiss me kate are better examples of her dancing than in this movie and like you said samantha judy singing she's done way better in other movies it does seem almost like an exhausted team of musical writers that are just like judy's got one more movie we gotta make this year let's just get this done the only one i'm assuming didn't complain is peter lawford who is probably just happy to be there. If you enjoy the podcast, consider supporting us on our Patreon, like David Floyd, Amy Hart, Jeffrey, Brittany Brock, and Elizabeth Ziegler. Our Patreon helps pay the bills, and our patrons get access to a wealth of exclusive content like our classic actress March Madness tournament, bonus series like Doubled Features, based on a true podcast, and Being Elvis, as well as patron bonus swag like our But Have You Read the Book tote bags. Patrons also get monthly video updates from us. Patronage starts at just a dollar a month and gives you the opportunity to start listening to episodes like this 48 hours early. Head over to patreon.com slash ticklishbiz to learn more. Yeah, I'm really curious what the extent of control that Charles Walters had in this case, because he too was also replaced based on the crumbling marriage of Vincente Minnelli and Judy Garland. He's obviously not quite as skilled as Minnelli was. That's partly why we don't get as much out of Judy in this one. I'm curious because I know Charles Walters worked with Fred Astaire quite a bit. Walters was a really fascinating director. According to his biographer, was one of the few known gay directors. But he was a musical maven. I mean, he did a segment of Ziegfeld Follies. He did Good News with Peter Lawford. He did the Barclays of Broadway after this. He would reteam with Judy again on Summerstock. He would do the Esther Williams movie Texas Carnival and Dangerous Wind Wet and Easy to Love. He did pretty much all of the classic musicals you can think of. Gigi, High Society, The Tender Trap. Really great director. I just don't feel like maybe it's because, yeah, he was a replacement. Another great story that I love in researching this was that Minnelli was going to do this and Judy Garland said no because her therapist told her, I don't think it's beneficial for you two to work together again. Which is sad because Minnelli famously made Judy look her most beautiful in 1944's Meet Me in St. Louis. But after making The Pirate, which was a really contentious shoot, 
their marriage was just done. And the last thing you want is to be stuck being directed by a man you hate. I get it. It makes me sad, though. Poor Charles Walters had to come in and essentially clean up. One of the things that really doesn't work for this movie as well is the unfamiliarity. These all feel like these great musical elements, but Judy and Fred had never made a movie together. According to some reports, they had never even met. Some reports say that they had met a couple times during benefits and things, but they had never made a film, certainly. This was Charles Walter's second film, his first being, as you mentioned, Good News. We all know how that turned out. (laughs) He had certainly never worked with Judy Garland before. I don't think Ann Miller had worked with Fred before. Really, nobody knows each other and there's no synergy going on. That's a lot of the issue as well. You talk about so-and-so needs a performance, Fred needs a performance, Ann needs a performance, Judy needs a performance. So much of it, too, is this is the Irving Berlin show. These are the Irving Berlin songs. We don't care who's singing them. They just have to be sung. The best way I can think of is when you get a bunch of hit makers to do somebody's album, as we've seen historically with performers, you look at the album and you're like, they had every big name in the music writing world producing songs for them. Why is this album crap? And that often can be the problem. When you have so many elements that are supposed to be good, you think you're too big to fail, and yet you're not getting everybody at their best. And Really, that sums up Easter Parade for me. It's just not everybody at their best. And let's not forget, this is an Easter movie with very little connection to an actual holiday. We just say, oh, hey, it's the Easter Parade, and that is it. I'm not saying it needs to be a religious Cecil B. DeMille three-hour epic. Nobody needs that. But it is fascinating to me that in the grand scheme of Holiday Inn, White Christmas, where every holiday became commodified for a classic film. One point towards the end of the movie, he says, oh, we're going to perform on April 7th. And Judy is like, well, that's Easter. Really, I had forgotten that this movie has any connection with the holiday known as Easter. There is a parade, though. An Easter parade on Fifth Avenue. There is. There is, which I do appreciate. I do love that there's a lot of (laughs) street walking sequences in this movie to show we're out in the world and there's one scene where dawn tells hannah that she needs to be a girl that people look at so he's walking behind her and all the men are staring at her and it's because she's making weird faces i want to go back to that concept of maybe this movie is intentionally taking the piss out of things because i do love that hannah has this self-awareness that she is not a glamazon And the only way that she's going to entice men is by acting like a weirdo. But the movie doesn't go far enough with it. It wants to say, oh, she's self-aware, but we're not going to lean into that with her relationship. This is a woman that has such low self-esteem, apparently. And yet Peter Lawford is making moves on her and she never blinks an eye or thinks it's weird or anything. She's just like, oh, this hot guy is into me. That's cool. I guess I can just string him along again until my geriatric dance partner is into me. That's who I really want. So it's just totally inconsistent to the character. It never actually plays out. There's no conclusion to it. So Judy Garland's character is very, like you said, she's not incompetent, but she's a little silly, right? And a little not sure of herself. Another 
taking the piss out of the actor's moment could be the joke about her being left-handed and having to be trained out of that because that did happen to Judy Garland. But that just disappears. He apparently just Svengali's her out of any character traits she had prior to meeting him. And it just never comes back in a satisfying way or there are never any follow-up jokes after he discovers that she's good at musical comedy and that's it. That's the last time we get her being a real interesting person outside of being interested in him. The whole crux of this movie is that he believes he can make anybody into the next Nadine. And that plot is solved in about 10 minutes. She becomes the next successful star and he's proven his point. In a typical, even like Gene and Judy movie, for me and my gal is a great example there's a moment where she gets too big for her britches and decides to leave him. And how do they separate? This movie starts with Nadine being like, I want to go out on my own. And he's like, how dare you have ambitions? You can't leave me. And the movie doesn't really interrogate that. It doesn't interrogate Dawn's own ability to push people away because he demands their attention 24-7. And poor Johnny is just this character that Nadine is into him, clearly. He is not into her. For reasons that seem to make a lot more sense than the Fred and Judy plotline. Like, I understand why he's not into her. She's very open about being about money. He's just not vibing with her, which is fine. But at the end of the movie, when Dawn and Hannah split up because she thinks that he's still hung up on Nadine, Johnny is the one that tries to parent trap the reunion i was glad it didn't necessarily end with him and nadine having this moment where they're like oh i guess we'll be together but the movie certainly sets up that these two are consolation prizes and i'm just not buying that their relationship has any legs past the easter parade the parade's gonna happen he's still gonna be uninterested in her nadine's gonna be still committed to her career I got no faith in them ending up together at all. But the movie doesn't care about that. It's just Johnny's fine with his lot in life being the dude that pushes everybody together. I was getting beard vibes a little bit. <laughs> I could buy that. That makes more sense to me in many regards. You mentioned the self-awareness earlier. This movie is actually very self-aware just as a film, not just Judy's character. There are so many little jokes about especially Fred and Ginger's pairing and Fred and Ginger's relationship. Some of Nadine's costumes, her pink gown is almost a replica of the gown that Ginger wears in the Never Gonna Dance sequence in Swing Time. Just the title of that song is so similar to It Only Happens When I Dance With You and just the concept of that song. That combined with the feathers scene that really happened when they were dancing the cheek to cheek number in Top Hat. You get so many of those little moments about their relationship. They talk a lot about Nadine's success apart from Fred. It really ties into Ginger's acting success. It's almost a nod to it. I got to go back to what Izzy was saying, because honestly, I'm kicking myself that I didn't notice the homoeroticism. We talked about queer coding in Greatest Show on Earth. There's a bit more of it in this movie because you're totally right. Johnny is just this dude that shows up with no discernible interest in anything except for Judy, which honestly could just be that she's a decent looking girl that he's met up with and he wants Nadine to leave him alone. because She's barking up the wrong tree. 
I'm totally on the team Johnny Harrow gay icon. I stand by this. <laughs> what was it they used to call the Freed unit? Freed's fairies or something? <laughs> that coding is embedded in almost all of these movies. So you always have to keep it in the back of your mind. This was a big year for Peter Lawford, the late 1940s. He started in 1947 doing good news. He had three movies in 1948 alone, On an Island with You, This, and Julia Misbehaves. And then he would end the decade with Little Women. Pete was doing a lot in the very short span of time. But I would say that this is not exactly great use of his time. Just go watch On an Island with You, where he plays a far more heterosexual character that does not take no for an answer. Right down to kidnapping women. We love it, despite its problematic nature. He is certainly persistent and rich in all of his movies. I know that Peter Lawford, he didn't like the characters that he played. He felt that he played entitled, spoiled rich boys far too often. But honestly, I wish he would just have owned it a bit more. He plays an all-American football guy in Good News with a British accent. Come on, guy. You're only going to be able to play certain things if you can't hide that accent. He played Entitled Spoil Rich Boys so well. We loved it. I was fine with it. I don't know why he couldn't just own it. The fact that Peter Lawford doesn't belong anywhere in any of these <laughs> movies from this era, it goes right hand in hand with the amalgamation of things that were these musicals, they didn't make any sense. But they were so fun to look at and so entertaining. Peter Lawford is the perfect example of that. That sums up his entire career. The movies don't make sense, but he's just so pretty to look at. We need a shirt, Samantha, all of the Peter Lawford characters that says which Peter Lawford doesn't belong. I am in Dead Ringer not too long ago. So it was very interesting to contrast his performance there with this one. He certainly has lived a lot in between those two movies, to say the least. I like him as a bad boy, too, like a straight up villain. He really works in that context. Peter Lawford did not exactly age wonderfully, but I will say that if you watch That's Entertainment when it was 1970s, super old Peter Lawford, he was rocking the 70s aesthetic. It's almost like a Bieber cut. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I support this. If Hollywood ever wanted to make a Peter Lawford biopic for a theater of just one, just me, I would be here for it. I think about it a lot. I I'm shocked this. there isn't a HBO series about the Rat Pack or something. I was just talking to somebody about this yesterday, about the heyday of Rat Pack biopics that we got in the 90s and how we need to bring it back, if only so I can get on screen Peter Lawford sleeping around with a lot of women or doing whatever he was doing during that time frame. I have casting ideas, Hollywood. You should make this happen. Who would we have cast as Ann Miller, though, for the Ann Miller episode? Oh, man. I don't think there's Ooh. anyone who can live up to Ann Miller right we now. We would just have really to, like, know. deep fake really Ann no Miller. One. Yeah. <laughs> We'd have to deep fake Ann Miller. No one can tap like that anymore. And dream. no one has her sassiness. I dream a dream of uh, Ann Miller... Peter Lawford series starring deepfake Ann Miller and Aaron Taylor Johnson as Peter Lawford. Tell me that would not make sense. They both have accents that do not sound like a real Brit. 
Aaron Taylor Johnson's going to have to lose half of his body mass. Peter Lawrence. Well, yeah, he would have to look like a normal person. Yes. <laughs> yeah, like, okay. sorry, you have to look normal. <laughs> if we can give Grace Kelly an Oscar for looking like a normal woman, that's how you do it. The boys can ugly up too. Did yeah. you just say ugly up to Peter Lawford? Uh, no, I <laughs> uglied up Aaron Taylor Johnson, make him look like a normal person so he could play Peter Lawford. So we gotta dress him down. We gotta make Ah, uh, yes, look- dressing him down to the hunky Peter Lawford, his great sacrifice. Yes, yes exactly. Yes, sometimes you win the Oscar for just being plain. This is all much better than Easter Parade. I'm sorry. <laughs> Do we have anything else we want to throw out about the movie we actually set out to talk about? Or Ann Miller? If we're talking about Ann Miller movies that are worth seeing probably more than this movie, I do love Kiss Me Kate. It's the Ann Milleriest Ann Miller performance. She's daffy. She's a woman that you know is actively cheating on her boyfriend, but you support it because she has reasons and good intentions which is a very fine needle to thread even something like hit the deck or texas carnival which is a lot of fun or even the opposite sex which is the remake of the women she's always good you can always go david lynch and just watch mulholland drive i don't know how many classic film stars we would go from this to david lynch but in this case we can so all of those are better examples of Ann Miller Miller time than this movie. If I could choose one Ann Miller performance, it would be one you had mentioned, On the Town. I love her in On the Town. She just owns that character. She doesn't have front and center. She has to share the spotlight with Gene Kelly, Vera Ellen, but her scenes and her songs in that are fantastic. And I love her costumes. Just everything about her in it, I love. Prehistoric Man in the Green Dress is just fantastic. My favorite. And I do My love, favorite Ann Miller number. I love that all of Ann Miller's costumes were designed intentionally for her legs. So they all have high slits so that her legs can peek through even if the dresses are ankle length. She's got tearaway clothes that she can just make pants out of. I know in this movie, in Easter Parade, she wore flats because Fred Astaire was super short. And she plays like an anthropologist in that movie, which is genius because you do not get anthropologist vibes from Ann Miller. But then that's on you, the audience, because honestly, Ann Miller could play anything. So why not an anthropologist? The name of her dog made me laugh out loud in this because I forgot that her dog's name was Short Hemline. Hilarious. So good. (laughs) want to give another shout out to Mulholland Drive. Her character in that really encapsulates for me what is so interesting and appealing about Ann Miller. Aside from all the dancing and aside from her talent, there's just this wide-eyed fascination that she has with show business that she just loves it so much. And there can be all of this chaos and weird shit happening around her at MGM or RKO or all these dark stories that we associate with Hollywood. She just knows her way around. She'll welcome you with a smile. She'll give you the keys. She'll let you know what you need to do and just does it looking glamorous and friendly. That vibe is what is so interesting about her, that she was always a believer in entertainment, was its loudest advocate, despite the fact that we hear so many horror stories. Mulholland Drive weirdly captures that. It's interesting to see her in that context. It always amazes me that she made this movie allegedly because 
while wearing a back brace because her husband was an abusive jerk and threw her down the stairs. I'm always irritated that there is actually not a biography about her. No one has written about her life. I would love to see because a lot of her personal life is really cloaked in rumor and conjecture. There's people that have said that she was Louis B. Mayer's mistress. It's never been definitively proven or disproven. She was married, lost a child, but there's really not a whole lot of information out there publicly about her life outside of her movies, which on the one hand, like you were saying, Izzy, makes it great that she really was this true believer in the power of classic film and had so many great stories about it. And yet, that's the ultimate neg on all of us as film viewers, is that she was able to curate her life because there was no awareness of it. And there still isn't today, which... I would like to think that Ann Miller is smiling down at us being like, yeah, you don't know any of the horror stories that I went through. You know, nothing. All of the stories that she tells over and over in her interviews are things that now we would read as that was deeply inappropriate that that happened to you. But she just laughs it off. And she was like, that was the best day of my life. And you're like, oh, when you got harassed, that's cool. It's very strange, but I think just maybe a generational difference. The thing that we love about all of the old Hollywood stars, right? Peter Lawford was the person that he was. Ann Miller has talked openly about the issues that she had with Hollywood. And again, hashtag Ann Miller's old nose. She clearly endorsed changing her appearance. And yet, with someone like Ann Miller compared to what we now know about even like someone like Shirley Temple that experienced sexual harassment, Ann Miller just is such a fascinating personality because she had to be aware of how grossly inappropriate it was. And yet, considering how long her career lasted and now she's like a Lynchian figure, she's got far more of a legacy than even some of the other stars that probably treated her poorly. And the thing that I always remember about her as well, just from her work and her movies, she put so much effort into everything that she did. She was so appreciative of those who came before her. She really emulated Eleanor Powell. And honestly, she brought that style of dancing to a little bit of a newer audience in the late 40s and 50s. That's so fantastic. If it weren't for her, you could argue tap. Would it still be around? Same with pantyhose, according to her. She claims to have invented those. She was just always on her mark. She was always a professional, just like Sid Charisse, but never quite got her due to the level of the Judy or the Lucille Ball, which is so unfortunate. She was able to still work in such prominent roles like Mulholland Drive. That really speaks to her talent all those years later. IMDb has a thing that her nose supposedly healed improperly after an injury and that they made a prosthetic extension to conceal it. No. Unless somebody can tell me otherwise, she had a nose job. I'm just going to always stand by that hashtag and Miller's old nose. I think that's the note we're going to go out on. Overall, Easter Parade. It's fine. I've seen this movie so many times and that's all the enthusiasm I can muster for it every time I see it. I think... Today's going to be the day that I'm going to have a feeling about it. No, no. It's worth watching for Ann Miller and Peter Lawford because all of their movies are worth watching for them. Judy's good. 
Everybody's made better movies. It's a meh for me. Izzy, Samantha, where do you end on Easter Parade? I'm very close to your opinion there. If I ever want to see Judy doing her best, then Easter Parade isn't the first thing that I'm reaching for. That said, she elevates a lot of this material and you can see why she was so beloved at this time, especially in the beginning when she does a lot of physical comedy. The scene where she doesn't quite hit the notes that she needs to hit in their first performance together is fantastic. Maybe the first half is a win for me and the second half falls apart. There are glimmers of greatness in there. You have all the right pieces, but they don't quite fit ultimately. Again, I say that this huge downfall is the songs. There are a few outliers, but for the most part, the songs are just so outdated. It just feels like no one's met. That was probably the case before the cameras started rolling. You could definitely seek out the work of everybody else, find some better things. But that being said, I really do love tradition and I love these holiday type of movies that you mentioned, Kristen, like Holiday Inn and White Christmas. So I have put this on for Easter before and just seeing the Technicolor and seeing the gorgeous costumes and the dancing and Fred and Judy, it's just fun. Sometimes if you're not looking for the best movie ever and it's Easter, there's nothing Easter about it, but do you need an excuse to watch Fred and Judy? I don't think so. Well, listeners, you can let us know your thoughts on Easter Parade and Miller, my proposed Peter Lawford biopic. You can email it to us at ticklishbiz.gmail.com or send it to us via our social media platforms on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz or Instagram at ticklishbiz. Izzy, it is always great to talk to you. We love Be Kind Rewind. Feel free to let fans know where they can find your work and what you have coming up. You can always check out my YouTube channel for new videos. It's just Be Kind Rewind on YouTube and on Twitter at BK Rewind, Instagram, BK underscore Rewind. And thank you for having me. Always love hanging out with you too. That's going to close out Ticklish Business for today. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews matter. So leave us one on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. As we mentioned earlier, you can follow us on all social media platforms. You can follow me over at therap.com. I'm also on Twitter at journeys underscore film and Instagram at KristenLopez88. Samantha Ellis, where are you online? You can mostly find me at Classic Film Geek on Twitter, but you can find my blog posts at musingsoftheclassicfilmatic.com and my Cooking with the Stars posts over at classicmoviehub.com. Our Patreon helps keep the lights on at Ticklish Biz HQ and gives us chances to do new content like our aforementioned Double Features episode on the dueling versions of Sabrina. So consider helping us by supporting at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz and my book, but have you read the book, is out now. You can order it wherever you buy books. We will be back on April 12th with a new episode. See you all then.